Good. Good, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Peggy Clark. I'm the Vice President of Policy Programs at the Aspen Institute and the Executive Director of Global Health and Development at the Institute. We have a fantastic panel for you here this afternoon. I'm glad you've walked over this way to join us. Uh, the name of this presentation session is What are the Threats to Global Health? And it's my role to introduce our um, moderator this afternoon, who's Lyndon Haviland. She's a dear friend. Um, we're lucky to have her as an Aspen Global Health Fellow with us. She's a nationally recognized strategic consultant, in, particularly in communications for health. She used to be the head of the American Legacy Foundation, which dealt with the issue of tobacco education. And she's working with uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon this year around the issue of maternal health. So, Lyndon, we're so happy to have you with us. And thanks very much to uh, all of our panelists for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. As Peggy said, I think this is going to be a very exciting panel. You know, after lunch, it's always a problem. So we want to keep you awake. This panel should be about what keeps you up at night, maybe the things that go bump in the night, or maybe, as we're going to hear from some of the panelists, the things that should keep you up at night. So I'm going to start with a brief introduction. You have complete bios of each of these people, but I want to tell you a little bit about each of them. So I'm going to start at my far right with Chris Elias. Chris is the head of an agency that if I get to go back in the field, I want to work for Chris. Chris works for PATH, and in his tenure at PATH, in 10 years, he has taken them from a small or scrappy organization to a $250 million organization that really pioneers the issue of public-private partnerships. They work in many countries, and what Chris said is the most important thing about hiring is finding people that understand fundamentally the DNA of what it means to be a part of PATH. And he's very proud of his staff, and I'm sure his staff is very proud of him. And they advocate for innovative responses to global health challenges. So we're going to hear from Chris about many things, including what is the marketplace of ideas around vaccine responses, and what are the ways that we can work smarter and better together. Next to Chris is Anne Veneman. I got a chance to meet Anne last year um, as part of my work at the UN, where Anne was the fifth director of UNICEF. Anne is a tireless advocate for women's rights. She also informs me that she's a kid at heart, which is great because when I was preparing to introduce her, I realized that she'd gotten a ton of different awards, but the one that was most intriguing to me was the award that she got from Sesame Street. She informed me that that night was one of the highlights of her career because she got to meet all of the Sesame Street characters, and she was given her award by Cammie, the South African AIDS puppet. You'll hear she's trained as a lawyer. She was also the first female head of the USDA. Um, and next to me is Nathan Wolf. Nathan, I won't tell you something that he doesn't want you to know, but I will tell you right now that Nathan, I consider the Indiana Jones of virus hunting. He is, I thought, you know, when I interviewed him originally, that he was going to tell me that as a child he was just covered with mud and that he was always eating the dirt, and that's how this began. But it's not true. Nathan is totally convinced that the science of viruses offers the most exciting time ever for exploration that we have seen on Earth. Not only do we have the technology, but there's so many fascinating things happening. And we're going to hear a lot from Nathan about the things that he really focuses on, which is really, I think, one of the most traditional kinds of threats, which is when viruses move from animals to humans. And what does that mean? 
What does that mean for the next pandemic? What does it mean for the pandemics that we have already seen? Evian flu, swine flu, and HIV. So with that, I'm going to turn to each of the, um, my panelists is going to speak briefly, and then we'll get right into a dialogue. So Nathan, what should we be afraid of? Sure. Um, and I think what I'll focus on, and you'll, you'll hear different things from all of us, but what I'm going to be focusing on is viruses and other microorganisms. Um, we live in a radically sort of new world. We live in a world that's very, very different from how this world was even 20 or 30 years ago. Um, one of the, the slides I really like to show shows the flight, global flight connectivity in like 1960 and the global flight connectivity now. And you look at sort of a map that has a few little red strings around it to something which is a plateful of spaghetti. We live in a world now where human populations and animal populations are completely interconnected. Uh, and this goes from sites that we work at in rural Congo, some of the most remote places in the world. Um, and even from those places, by and large, you can get to anywhere in the world within 48 hours. And what that means is that viruses and other diseases that previously would have infected a small village, spread around for a while, and gone extinct locally, now have a global stage to play on. Um, and what this means is we're going to see more and more pandemics. These pandemics are going to be hitting us more regularly. We're going to have the potential to have more important and devastating pandemics. Um, but I'm going to also talk to you, in addition to this sort of natural threats, that viruses represent, there are threats which are associated with humans, and I think of these as sort of bioterror and bioerror. Uh, we exist in a world where our capacity to utilize biology is moving very quickly in the direction that information technology went. So if you think about information technology, something like 15 or 20 years ago, people had the capacity you know, perhaps to read data, but it, it was only the scientists that really could write data. Now everybody reads and writes data. When it comes to biology, we're starting to be in a situation where you can read data. You may have heard the situation where some um, high school kids in New York wanted to know what kind of sushi they had, so they sent away specimens to the barcode of life and found, found out that what they thought was being sold as fancy Toro, in fact, was uh, you know, lower quality fish. What this means is more and more people are going to have in their hands biological technology. That means more specimens that could be accidentally released and more potential for malicious use of biological uh, viruses and other agents as weapons. So what's the big problem from my perspective? I think the problem is that we still have a very reactive and responsive approach to how we think about these things. If you think about the way that we deal with infectious diseases largely on a global sphere, we are responsive. We're sort of like what a cardiologist was like in the 60s or 70s. We basically wait for the heart attack and then do our best to treat it. Uh, and we're not bad about that, but what we need to do is to get much, much better at predicting these things and ideally preventing them. Uh, and I, I'd like to sort of give you a slightly um, technologically uh, optimistic take, which is I think that we really have the potential to do this. I think that we underestimate our capacity to understand the way that these things evolve, to, to detect them early, and to change the course of pandemics before they go global. Um, what I do at Global Viral Forecasting, which is a, a, an organization that I started up a few years ago with funding from uh, the Skoll Foundation and Google.org, is work to combine a range of different sources of data 
um, from the basic sort of old-fashioned surveillance. We work in 20 countries around the world looking at the viruses that are jumping over from animals to humans. These are how pandemics, by and large, start. And we're actually, we've focused ourselves at these sort of portals of entry where these viruses enter into human populations with the idea that we can actually catch them early. And in addition, what we do is we now combine this with digital epidemiology. We're entering into a new world. So this world has certain threats associated with it because of technology and because of interconnectivity. But these, many of these factors also provide us incredible advantages. Uh, the capacity to, to scrape through uh, world news and to create summaries of these things. The ability to use non-traditional data sources, for example, um, take Walmart, what's their sales of over-the-counter drugs? You can follow these now potentially in a very real-time way, and you could mash up these systems, which is what we're doing, in order to really provide uh, what I think of as epidemic intelligence, namely the capacity to catch these things before they spread. Um, and I think I'll just leave you uh, on a note, um, on the note of HIV. So uh, HIV, when, when most of you will think about the beginnings of the AIDS pandemic, you'll think about something that was, you know, probably you'll, you, you might think about the 1980s. Um, the reality is this is a virus that crossed from chimpanzees into human populations probably at least 100 years ago. Uh, so by the time of the Great Depression, there were people in Central Africa that were infected with this virus. Had we had the capacity to find it early, say in the 60s or 70s, create diagnostics and respond, we may be in a situation now where instead of having 40 million people infected with HIV throughout the planet, we had something closer to 1 million or 4 million. And I think that we shouldn't let ourselves go soft. We need to be really be aiming at this as an objective, this, this capacity to catch these things before they become global catastrophes. Thank you. Anne, you um, have, let's go right from microbes to children, women and children. You've been an advocate for women's health. What are the global health threats and what can we do about them? Well, thank you for the opportunity to share this panel. And um, I think that as we look at overall threats, and I agree that pandemics are a big threat and that there is a much greater need to look at this intersection of human and animal health. Um, but at the same time, it's important to recognize that as we um, are looking at health around the world, some of the major things we're dealing with are the issues of the health of women and children and their access to health care. Um, many of you may have heard of the Millennium Development Goals. Well, some of these really look at what is the what they call the under five mortality rate. There are still around eight million children a year dying of largely preventable causes. The two biggest killers, you think probably it's malaria or AIDS or something, the two biggest killers of children are pneumonia number one and diarrhea number two. So as we look at children's health, the, the, the things that we need to be clearly focused on is access to vaccines and other preventative medicine, um, access to good nutrition, uh, and this is very important, particularly in the first years of life of a child, um, beginning with the, the uh, conception to age two. If a child does not get adequate nutrition, that child's cognitive ability can be impacted for a lifetime, uh, affecting the child's ability to learn in school and earn as an adult. Um, so it is important to look at this overall child health, but the inextricable link between the health of the mother and the health of the child is also very important. Not only the nutrition aspect, but prenatal care 
access to health care, uh, safe, um, safe birthing mechanism, uh, methods, and also freedom from sexual violence of young women and freedom from early marriage because a woman who, a child, I should say, a child who is under the age of 15 when she gives birth is five times more likely to die in childbirth. So I think we have to look at how all of these things fit together. I would also say that in looking at the issues of health in the developing world, one of the two of the major things that have to be looked at in addition to the connection with nutrition um, is water and sanitation. Access to clean water and sanitation impacts diarrheal diseases, the second largest killer of children, um, and sanitation lags even further behind. 58% of the people in India still practice open defecation. I think that's just shocking. And until you get these water and sanitation issues solved around the world, we will continue to have people dying of largely preventable causes. So there is the intersection of all of these issues that must be coming together as we look at the issues of global health and particularly impacting women and children. Great. Chris, one of the things that we talked about that um, was surprising when I asked you what you thought the biggest threats, coming threats were, um, you didn't you didn't start with zoonotic viruses. You didn't talk about maternal and child health, but you talked about our exporting of some of our lifestyle and chronic diseases. So tell us what you see coming forward. Uh, thanks, Lyndon. I was a little worried after um, Nathan and Anne that there might not be enough global threats for me to be left for me to talk about, but um, I think there are plenty, actually, and I actually want to highlight three. Uh, the first is chronic disease. Um, Every year, the World Economic Forum does a report on global risks, and they produce a chart with about 40 of the top global risks, and they, it's on a graph by likelihood to occur and impact, socioeconomic impact. And for the last several years, one of the data points at the upper right part of that graph, very likely to occur and very high social, social and economic impact, has been the emerging epidemic, truly global epidemic, of chronic diseases and non-communicable diseases. We've heard a lot about that in the past panel with, uh, with, uh, with Zeke Emanuel about the patterns emerging in this country and in other rich countries. What most people don't realize is that 80% of the chronic diseases actually occur in lower and middle, middle income countries. And in those countries, they're occurring on top of the unfinished agenda that Anne described so well in terms of we still have eight million kids dying before their fifth birthday. We still have tremendous levels of maternal and reproductive morbidity and mortality. And so for the poor countries, they're facing a dual burden. They have an unfinished agenda of infectious disease, maternal and reproductive health morbidity to address, and they've got an emerging um, uh, chronic disease epidemic, heart disease, diabetes. Diabetes in particular is taking off like a rocket, partly because we've been very successful in global exporting and globalizing our unhealthy lifestyles of overnutrition and lack of physical activity, et cetera. So what we're seeing is tremendous economic impacts. Just to give you a couple of statistics, you know, it, over the next decade, if chronic diseases aren't addressed, they'll increase 27% in Africa, 25% in the Middle East, 21% um, in Asia and, and the Pacific, so that in just 10 years, 75% of the disease burden, even in lower and middle-income countries, will be from chronic disease. So we still have our hands full with the viral emergence, 
an, an AIDS pandemic where five new people get infected every day for two that we put on therapy. And we've, yet, we've got another wave coming, an important wave that has important impacts both economically as well as socially as well in terms of people's health. The second um, threat I'd like to put on, you know, add to the list of my colleagues is about unchecked population growth. We had a very important session yesterday about putting reproductive health back on the global agenda in a sustainable way. Um, and, and I think because of the politics around providing women with, the, with adequate contraceptive, high-quality contraceptive information and services, there's been a, a sort of a, a, a lack of understanding of some of the complexities of population growth. Many people assume that the population is growing primarily because there's some people who still want to have a lot of kids. That's actually a tiny driver. It's mostly in very rural, very poor places where families still want to have lots of children. The two big drivers of population growth are unmet demand for contraceptive services, large number of people who want to have fewer children but currently lack access to the reproductive health services necessary to control their, their uh, fertility. And most importantly, the biggest driver is what, what the demographers call population momentum. It's the age, structure of the, the age structure of the population, the fact that half of the world's population is under the age of 25. And even if, they only, if all of them have two kids, it's still going to grow dramatically from our current situation of six and a half billion to at least eight and a half billion. But if we don't do what we can to meet the unmet demand today and to invest in slowing the population momentum, and the way you slow population momentum is not by spacing children, it's by spacing generations. And the thing we know works to do that is to educate girls and, and women. And then they will naturally want to have uh, children later in their reproductive cycle. So if we do those, make those investments, we will have a, a, an important way to reduce uh, a significant uh, threat to, to uh, global health because the more people there are, the more chronic diseases and epidemics, et cetera, as well as impacts on climate change and environmental degradation, et cetera. The third and final thing I want to put on, on the table is really a, a, a threat of uh, to the global health response that comes from the sustainability of the recently acquired political and financial support for making important changes. We have seen over the last decade the most dramatic progress in global health that we've uh, seen, uh, both in terms of reductions in maternal and child mortality um, and in terms of commitments from countries. The G8 now routinely talks about uh, global health in their communiques. That wasn't true 10 years ago. We've seen development assistance for, for health increase fourfold in the last 15 years. It doubled just in the last seven years. And we've seen um, you know, bold leadership from groups you know, like the Obama administration with its new global health initiative. The question is, will that be sustained? Will we have enough money to actually fall through? And will we be able to spend it across the entire system for delivering value? We have seen in the last decade the fattest pipeline of new innovation for global health that we have ever seen, largely because of the investments of the Gates Foundation, other foundations, uh, governments like the U.S. and the U.K. We have a portfolio of new vaccines, diagnostics, drugs that are ready to come, some of them already approved and ready to go. What we haven't seen is a similar type of investment in terms of time, energy, money, intellectual um, uh, thought in how do we strengthen the health systems for delivering all that innovation. And if we wind up in a situation where we have new drugs and vaccines and we don't have the systems to deliver them, we face what I worry about is what I call an innovation pileup, where 
we are working through these creative public-private partnerships to incent companies on their margins to work with us to produce tools for poor countries to solve important problems. If we don't follow through by getting those tools out to the bottom billion, to the poorest people who need them the most in the most remote areas, those companies are not going to answer the phone next time I call them and ask them to work with us. So I think there's an issue of can we sustain the level of resources and can we deploy it intelligently so that we're taking not only innovating in the development of new tools, but innovating in the delivery of new tools to the people who need them the most. Great, Chris. Thank you. I want to ask you, because PATH works in over 70 countries, you are at the forefront of these public-private partnerships, and if we have this innovation pileup, can you tell us how in, give us an example of how PATH is really working, what's the role of civil society, and how do you influence either bilaterals or governments to take one of these innovations and take it to scale? How do we get it from being an interesting experiment to being something that's truly a game-changer in public health? I think there's three, at least three, things we have to do. One is advocacy, producing the evidence to inform policymakers uh, about resource allocations based on real evidence about the impact in terms of lives saved and disability avoided uh, for these, uh, 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 these new innovations. Another is actually working very closely at country level so that the uh, investing in country systems for understanding the extent of the problems, the available tools, and for making evidence-based rational decisions about how to add those to the system. Um, and then the, the other is to, is to just work with the various pieces of this evolving global health architecture, all of the new entities, the Global Fund, the Global, the global Alliance for Aid, Vaccines and Immunization, so that we have enough resources to, to um, move those priority uh, uh, technologies into use. And um, talking about country-level programs, this is singing the song of UNICEF uh, in terms of really working with in-country partners, enabling country-led programming. Tell us, from your perspective, does it really work? And how, and how would we know? And also, at lunch, we talked a little bit about the issue of the financial crisis and your thoughts about sustainable funding to make um, some of this global health really work? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's happened over the years is global health has been largely vertically funded um, and campaign funded. What do I mean by that? We have a, camp, a, a campaign um, to eliminate polio. We're almost there. We have eliminated in the world the smallpox. It worked. Um, there's been a measles campaign that's been very effective. There's a bed net campaign against malaria now, uh, along with antiretrovirals. But one of the things that happened during the 80s when the vaccination rates became very high because of all these campaigns is that later on, the vaccination rates began to come down, partly because there weren't sustainable health systems built at the community level with an investment from the communities in how to continue this uh, into future generations. And that's where we really have to look at sustainability in development in so many ways. Um, but I, we were talking today about, you know, is, can the developing world always continue to depend on the developed world for finance, financing for global health? 
or what other kinds of structures can make it more sustainable? One is more efficiencies in the system. There's a lot of players in global health. Is the money actually being spent in, a, in the most collaborative and coordinated way so the most effective use is being made of it? Are there new structures? Some countries are now working with small insurance schemes um, to provide populations um, in impoverished countries access to health care that they wouldn't otherwise have. I think we also have to look at the issue of training. Um, have we been too rigorous in the developed world about, and we talked a little bit about this at lunch, who can actually provide health delivery of health care services? Um, does it have to be a doctor? Can it be a nurse? Can it be a community-based health care worker that can be much more accessible and, um, and eat more easily trained at the country level? And by the way, if you train a, a person as a nurse or a doctor, they oftentimes leave the country because um, the economic opportunities are so much greater other, other places. So how do you get that health care delivery system to work effectively and also use more community-based trained workers to provide preventative care. Great. Nathan, I was struck, you know, when I was listening to you by your belief that we are building a digital surveillance system. But I think one of the challenges in public health and global health is about communicating risk. And can you talk a little bit about your views about how afraid should we be that you've already discovered other retroviruses that have already moved from animals to humans? And, and how, what's our role in communicating that risk? I think it's a very central question, and I think, in fact, we should think of risk literacy as being one of the threats to global health. Um, and for me, this also goes to Anne's point about sort of campaign-by-campaign campaign issues. If you think about our problems with regards to pandemic control and prevention, part of it is this sort of disease du jour mentality. Okay, so if you go back a few years, you have H5N1 bird flu, very, very deadly virus. You know, fortunately, so far has not become particularly transmissible, but nobody thinks about it in the general, you know, community anymore. You don't hear about it. Okay, then you have H1N1 swine flu incredibly transmissible virus, everybody suddenly shifts gears, there's a huge effort to think about H1N1. Um, the reality though is what we need to do is to think about the factors that underlie all of these phenomena. And the reality is there are absolute um, commonalities to things like HIV and SARS and Ebola and H5N1 and H1N1. We need to approach these things systematically and we need to really inform people about risk. Right now, I mean, if you think about H1N1, for me it's a fascinating story. Um, I was stuck in the, um, in the eruption in London, and I was sitting with people, and I had all these people sort of comparing um, the volcanic eruption to H1N1 by saying, like, oh, this is totally overblown. This is, um, you know, this is something that the media is overreacting to. Um, there couldn't be a more profound difference between the volcanic eruption and H1N1, okay? And I'm going to tell you why. And it's a, it's, a, it's a really short lesson in what we call uh, basic reproductive number of, of infectious diseases. And it's basically all of you folks who are in business will know this. H1, viruses are scalable, Okay, so from my perspective, worst case scenario, it would have been a terrible scenario, one of those planes would have gone down. Okay, and then everybody would have been grounded and that would have been the end of it. H1N1, on the other hand, this is a virus that despite our best efforts, moved from infecting zero people on the planet 
to within a year infecting somewhere on the order of 10 to 15% of the humans on this planet. Okay, had the deadliness of that virus been even nominally greater, the sort of like I think of these things as having sort of virulence dials, you know, if it had been turned up just a little bit more, we would have had hundreds of thousands of deaths, and it would be all that any of us could talk about. Okay, so the notion that somehow these things are equated is a basic fallacy of understanding the nature of risk. And I think it's very important for us to communicate this. People need to know that H1N1, this was not, this was. Nature gave us, we had good luck because nature basically handed us a virus that was not very deadly. Um, but it was not because we mobilized, you know, and there were good things that came out of this crisis, but it was not the, the fact that we mobilized that this was not a devastating virus. And for those, you know, for those, um, you know, who, who you all know who sort of are skeptical about the public health response, think about this as sort of meteorologist um, watching a hurricane. If that hurricane at the last minute turns away and doesn't like smash into the, you know, into into land, it doesn't mean that you somehow victimize the uh, meteorologist. You're happy that the person was following that hurricane because you know there's going to be another hurricane, uh, and that's exactly the scenario we're in. Great, and I want to thank you, and I want to remind people we do have two standing microphones, and since this is being tape recorded, if you want to come up to the microphone, state your name, and ask a question, we would love to hear from you. And they're turning the microphones on now. But I'm struck, Nathan, in listening to you and listening to Chris and Anne, that th we have animal problems that come from the animal world, and then we have problems that come from the man-made world. And no one here has talked really about the devastating impact of tobacco use. Um, 1,200 people die every day in the United States. Um, China has the fastest increase of smoking among young women. And that's certainly, um, Chris, what do you think about that? Well, I, I, I'm we, we left one off. I mean, you know, the projections I've seen are that in the 100 years of this century, um, it's projected that tobacco alone will cause 11 billion deaths. I mean, think about that. That's just shy of double the current population of the, US, of the, of the globe. So, you know, there's a, a tremendous amount of chronic disease that results from uh, tobacco use. And, you know, there's been some very interesting programs about how do we change the incentives to change an industry very hard um, and equally hard to change you know the cessation programs are you know we know from HIV and from other areas that behavior change is very difficult I mean the the session just before that this one in this tent was about that and how hard it is um, we're gonna have to keep innovating so you know some, sometimes we think about innovation as new gadgets and new tool new technologies but we need a lot of innovation and behavior change particularly for cessation given that we have a a large and growing population of people um, uh, using tobacco now, but we also need innovation in how do we tax and change this business model so that we're not seeing this kind of expansion or exportation to poorer countries. Great, thank you. Please. Hi, Nisha Patel with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and I actually work on education issues in the U.S., um, but I'm always struck when I'm in these conversations about global issues or global health how there seems to be this divide where we're talk we always end up talking mostly about what's happening in developing countries, which is absolutely important. But there's rarely sort of a, a, a feedback loop of learning back and forth. Um, so, for example, on health, you know, Anne talked about, so who should be administering vaccines? Does it really need to be a doctor or a nurse? And I wonder if sometimes, you know, sort of to the extent that there's conversation, it's well, you know, more developed, wealthy countries or institutions should be providing more aid, which I agree with, um, to developing countries. But sort of what might be learned from some of those investments that could be fed back that ultimately impacts all of our health. So, for example, are there implications from what's learned that could be used in our own healthcare system in terms of lowering some of the costs? So, 
Thank you for that comment, and I'll just give a plug for someone who's out in the audience. Uh, Lord Nigel Crisp um, has just written a book called Turning the World Upside Down, and it talks about how we in the developed world should be looking for lessons from Africa and other places where they have a lot to teach us, and I'm sure he would be happy to engage in a longer conversation about that. Sure. Okay. I'm just, I, you're right, and we've, we do, PATH does very little work domestically. But the work that we've done domestically has been mostly in Washington State, where our headquarters is, and is based on bringing successful models from abroad back to the U.S. healthcare system. We had a very successful program uh, funded by the state of Washington to use pharmacists uh, f uh, under physician pharmacy agreements. This was before emergency contraception became over the counter, when it was still a prescription drug. Um, obviously, most people need emergency contraception on weekends and at night. And wait, and, and it's a drug that, you know, the longer you wait to take it, the less effective it is. And so enabling phys pharmacist access to emergency contraception prescription, it's now over the counter, but when it was still prescriptive, um, using a model from, you know, that we developed in developing countries where, th where there was no doctor, um, and, but where most people, when they were sick, went to the pharmacist and told them their ailment and got treated, sometimes good, sometimes badly. Um, and so that model of pharmacy access to important medicines that were needed to be delivered promptly was one we were able to successfully trans back to transfer back to Washington State. Then based on the Washington State model, several other dozens of other states uh, replicated as well. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that we do is we spend a lot of time with mobile phone technology, so doing mobile health, mobile surveillance. And I definitely think this is going to be one of these areas where you're going to have major leapfrogging. Kenya is likely to have comprehensive electronic medical records before the United States will. Um, and, you know, for example, some of our sites, uh, even in places where there's no electricity, uh, you have cell service and you have the capacity to reach out to these populations. And you might be asking yourself, well, how do they charge their phones? And you walk through the sort of night markets and people will have these generators and for a few cents will be selling a charge. Um, so this, there is some technological leapfrogging which will really change our capacity to catch things early and to do a whole range of other sort of basic health, uh, education, and, and other, other sorts of things. So I think we should you know, have the capacity to learn from that ourselves. It's sort of, it, it'll be incredible that, you know, to have countries in sub-Saharan Africa who adopt comprehensive electronic medical records with all the incredible data benefits of those systems and having us sort of in the Stone Age with regards to paper records. I also think we have to begin to look at some of these issues that really cross the developed and developing world. Not just pandemics, but looking at some of the issues of nutrition. Malnutrition, in my view, is continuing to grow at an alarming rate, both from an undernutrition perspective and an overnutrition. It's all malnutrition. Many of these obese children and people do not have adequate nutrition. I have, I've been very struck by the, this Jamie Oliver YouTube piece that went on CNN, where he went into this woman's freezer and pulled out all this processed food from pizza to pigs in a blanket, and that's what the family ate, and all of the family was over 300 pounds. And he said to the mother, the, he said, don't you ever cook any food? And she said, I don't know how to cook. So... And, you know, it's not just the United States. I mean, Mexico, I, we're debating the, at lunch whether or not it's now the most obese nation or the second obese nation. But then I had an experience just in April when I was in Zambia, and I was talking with our representative there about 
the growing malnutrition that they were seeing in the, um, in the rural areas where they mostly depend on corn. And corn alone is not going to give you a nutrient-rich diet. And she said part of the problem is because they've lost a whole generation to AIDS, they don't have the knowledge about cooking. So how, do, I mean, talk about behavior change. This is a global problem manifesting itself in different ways about how do people really get educated on nutrition, nutrient value, uh, cooking nutritious foods. And I think if we don't address this, we're going to continue to have a multi-pronged problem. I will just add one other thing to this, because it, it didn't come up yesterday in our maternal health panel, but about two months ago, the New York Times read an article on obese women and maternal health in this country. And it was a striking article about how it, this is increasing the rate of C-sections. It's um, actually resulting in low birth weight babies, and the list went on and on. And so I think we have to begin to look at the intersection of all of these issues and how they impact each other. I completely agree, and I have a real interesting example, I think, of this and how all these issues in some ways play together and that there are commonalities like poverty, which are central to all of them. Um, and this is the issue of consumption of wild game or bushmeat in places like Central Africa. Um, and this is an issue which really is at the heart of conservation, as most of us sort of first, um, at least in Western audiences, came across bushmeat. It's in the context of loss of endangered species, and certainly that's important. But at the same time, these, uh, as populations grow, these are not sustainable sources of animal protein. So you're going to have major food security issues. And then from a pandemic perspective, this is exactly the way that HIV and other viruses have entered into human populations. So part of the challenge, I think, for us will be if we really want to address these things, we're going to have to take some of these very difficult issues like say, uh, rural African poverty, and address them you know, in a way that will, will basically allow us to solve multiple problems. And if we don't, um, every, you know, everything we do will, will not stop us from you know, running into major calamities. Great. Thank you. We're going to take both these questions, and then we'll have the panel answer them first. Okay. I'm uh, Lauren Cobb from the University of Colorado. We heard you say, Chris, that um, we need to produce evidence for policymakers. Uh, so they can make evidence-based rational decisions. And uh, as a rationalist, I agree 100%. But in all, in all my decades of work in Latin America and Southern Asia and Africa, the, the problem is that the public, uh, the, uh, public health ministries are often, uh, they have structural problems. 95% of their... Um, Budget is, goes to salaries. They have almost nothing to work with. Uh, they are politically, polit politically appointed from, from the minister down to the janitors. They're, they owe their allegiance to the political party. They're incompetent in many ways, even um, when their hearts are in the right place and they want to make the right rational decisions. Um, <clears throat> I see this actually as a public health problem. It's a, it's a problem with the structure of the way we deliver public health. I see these ministries, and not just public health, and it's not just in the developing world, but, but everywhere else too, um, it's almost as though the social structures have an autoimmune disease. It's chronic, it's self-maintaining, um, and it creates incompetence. And until we address that disease, 
think of it in public health terms and, and address it as such, I don't think we're going to get very far. Sir? My question is, um, is there a branch of the government addressing the thing of a terrorist attack using pandemic things that could bring the country down? Similar to the 9-11, only it would be across the entire United States. Um, Chris and then the Anne, sure, please. Um, I agree with you to a point. Um, the the healthcare structure of many poor countries is as dysfunctional as the healthcare structure of this country. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's I mean, we have and we've been struggling with a, a series of structural problems in our own healthcare system. So that's. It's not unique to poor countries. We spend 16% of the GDP, the richest country in the world, and we have structural problems too. Um, they do have those structural problems. It's compounded by the fact that they also don't have any money. Right, so, um, uh, you know, and that makes it hard to attract talent. Um, and it does um, mean that they're generally understaffed and they have insufficient information systems, management information systems, procurement logistics, where I would disagree with you, or maybe it's in addition to what you said, is that in my experience is, is that there are a tremendous number of competent people. That my, the heroes in my world are what I like to call the, the, the honest technocrats who get paid $2 a day when they get paid and are working at the top of their game, running AIDS programs, family planning programs, immunization programs, and who do more with almost nothing than any other healthcare cadre I know in the world. So in those sclerotic systems, which need to be better resourced and need to be approached, I think scientifically, as, as you're suggesting, to objectively think about how do we build a better system, there are some uh, incredibly dedicated health professionals who we need to keep in place, support, um, use as the nidus for training a better a, a more comprehensive workforce. I, I just wouldn't want to lose that point. But I think you're right that there is a there are a set of structural issues. It goes to some of what um, Anne referred to in terms of the verticality of the resource flows. When in fact, um, w when the program actually gets delivered, it has to get integrated. And many community, you know, community health workers, you know, they're a family planning worker Monday and Tuesday, and they work for the leprosy program Wednesday afternoon. They do immunizations on Thursday. So there's, there is an integration to the system. It's ad hoc and not well designed. And so I, that's part of the implementation science that when I said, you know, we're facing an innovation pileup, it's, I think we've, we've, we've created some very efficient models for producing new innovation and new tools. We have not yet made that investment in the implementation science to do the same thing in terms of delivering those tools. Um, I, let me just address the data qu question real quickly and then, and then the other question as well. Um, I think on the data side that part of the problem has been that there's a lot of data out there that's never been utilized very well and that NGOs and the UN had not previously been actually helping countries build capacity in either data development or data analysis. We have a lot of household surveys that are... Uh, conducted by AID, multiple indicator cluster surveys is the, what the UNICEF works on. There's a lot of data that gives us the information from which we derive the under five mortality numbers and a lot of other things that we know. You can get it by district, by state, but we weren't really building the capacity in that data. 
One of the things when I was at UNICEF is we began to build this much more strongly, present it much more effectively. We moved the multiple indicator cluster surveys from every five years to every three years to get more real-time data. So I think it's part of the international community's responsibility to help build this capacity so that it can have continuity within the countries itself. Um, on the issue of, of terrorism and, uh, and, and government and what's happening, um, I happened to be in government during 2001, um, and every department of government looked at what are some of the biggest threats um, from your perspective and your department's um, and I will tell you that in the Department of Agriculture, um, a introduction of a severe animal disease was, and a fast-spreading animal disease was one of the things we looked at. Now, if you look at something like foot and mouth disease, it doesn't have an impact on human health, but it certainly has a huge impact economically and environmentally. But there are other threats to food safety, how you could impact the food, the food supply with a terrorist threat. All of this has been looked at by government. A lot of scenario planning has gone on, and certainly it is something that the country is very aware of. Great. Francis, we're going to take these next three questions. Francis first. Yes, I was moved to stand up uh, in, uh, as a, a result of um, the... Uh, comment from uh, uh, my colleague from the University of uh, Colorado. Uh, just uh, two points of, on, on that. Um, uh, uh, Chris, you've answered very well, but I would say that um, there may be some countries where uh, the janitor to the minister are appointed by the political system. But from my experience, both in Africa and in Asia, they must be a small minority. They are also very good, well-qualified uh, technical people, like has been said in many of those ministries. But one of the challenges they face, and which we could add to our list of uh, global threats to health, is the global health architecture itself, how global health is governed. Those issues about vertical programs, money being channeled to specific diseases and less to systems are a result of a dysfunctional uh, global health architecture. And how can we, as a global community, make the case for a more organized and a better governed international architecture so that it helps at country level to get the health workers where they need to be with the right motivation and the right resources uh, so that we have this health security that we all yearn for. Uh, a question, I think, uh, principally for Chris. But if you go through and you look from the context of how effectively we control our monitoring strategy for, for looking at pandemic viruses, for example, and we think about those that have a virulence that's very rapid, you know, something that doesn't kill someone in seven days, um, we seem to be less effective at being able to monitor for than those that may have um, still a very high level of potency but be in a position where uh, effectively they are, um, can be just as, as deadly from a communicable standpoint. You think about oncogenic viruses, you think about um, other types of viruses that can attack things. From the standpoint of an overall monitoring standpoint globally, what, what do you think the... Uh, you know, our, our, 
how well equipped we are from that standpoint. Great, and this will be our last question. Hi, I'm Nalini Saligram. Um, I um, have worked for a new uh, public health nonprofit organization called Arogya. Our mission is to uh, prevent chronic diseases and promote healthy living. Uh, so I just wanted to um, bring um, up the UN General Assembly special session next year, uh, so next September, on um, non-communicable diseases. And I just wanted to ask the panel to comment on sort of uh, how can we as a global community prepare for it so that we can maximize its impact. Great. So I'm going to ask the panel to uh, answer these questions and make their closing remarks at the same moment. So I'm going to go straight down. I'm going to start with Chris. Well, I think, uh, let me um, just respond to Nalini's comment about chronic disease. I think what we need to do is to um, take what we've learned from a decade or more of successful advocacy on behalf of the uh, infectious disease, maternal, child health agendas, the work that's been part and parcel of the progress we've seen uh, related to the Millennium Development Goals 4, 5, and 6, to take what we've learned there in terms of effective advocacy, using evidence to inform that advocacy, figuring out who the key opinion leaders are to set that agenda. And to also take what we've learned in terms of models of collaboration and partnership for solving problems so that when we go there, it's not just a description of how bad the problem is, but that there's a potential set of solutions. So for instance, on chronic disease in particular, I'm very optimistic that once we start working on it and funding it, we'll actually be able to produce solutions less expensively than we have for infectious disease. So in the case of malaria vaccines, we're doing a $250 million malaria vaccine trial because nobody will help fund it because you know, there's no innovation going on for, for those diseases like malaria where only the poor have them. In the case of chronic disease, it truly is a global threat. So in when we think about tech techniques for monitoring or treating diabetes, we don't have to discover those. We have to adapt the platforms, those, those innovations which are produced by the market for this economy, and just adapt them into lower cost platforms that could, are more rugged and can be de deployed in more, and that's a less expensive proposition for innovation in terms of, of delivery, uh, discovery, and it will piggyback on successful innovations in delivery around chronic treatment for HIV and other things. So I think the solution set for chronic disease is going to be actually less expensive um, uh, than it has been for infectious disease because we can build on it. So I think as we go to that summit, we not only have to be clearly articulate about the problems, but we have to be clearly articulate the value proposition for actually solving them in an affordable way. Anne? Uh, let, me, let me address the comment uh, in particular that was made about the global health architecture. Um, I, I don't disagree with you that more needs to be done on looking at global health systems. We have been too vertical in the past. But one of the things that I think we, that, that needs to be done in various countries is to really map what the health system looks like. Um, you know, we sometimes assume in, in global health that the government is providing all of the service um, and that we're trying to build all the capacity in government, when in fact, if you look on the ground, the private sector, um, the faith-based community are providing a tremendous amount of the health care in the, in the country or the communities. 
with technology today, a lot of mapping could be done of health systems, of education systems. And I think it would inform better the decisions about what, where healthcare is, what kind of healthcare is being provided, how far is the nearest hospital. And you could begin to build around communities based upon really a knowledge of what your system looks like. And I don't think we have enough of that. So as we look at the architecture of the global system, I think it's important to look at what the structure is in the particular countries in which we're dealing. I don't think there is one silver bullet that we can hand on a, on a platter to the um, developing world and say, this is what your healthcare system ought to look like. Nathan? Sure. First, in response to the question about um, global disease detection and acute versus chronic infections. I think, this is, I think this is a really important point. We get caught up with viruses like influenza, which obviously are incredibly important and will continue to be important. Um, but there's a little bit of an advantage that we have epidemiologically when we deal with a virus like flu, because what happens is the person becomes infected and then fairly quickly becomes ill. Whereas you think about a virus like HIV, I mean, this is a virus that the time between uh, when infection occurs and when you actually see the consequences of it uh, can be many years. And so if you think about a virus that, uh, you know, hypothetically, many of us could be infected with a virus that um, is something that maybe was an emerging virus and a pandemic that we simply are not familiar with yet. And those, there, so there are really important challenges to thinking about these sorts of long incubation period agents. So I think it's a really important point. Um, and then in terms of uh, sort of closing remarks and perhaps response to one of the questions, I think one interesting way to think about this and an area that brings together uh, many of the things we've talked about is health diplomacy. Um, and I think, I mean, for, first of all, I think we should all be applauding what's going on in the current administration with regards to global health and thinking about health diplomacy. And whether it's the Department of State or um, HHS or DOD, there, uh, all of these branches of the U.S. government have active programs in what is increasingly being called bioengagement. And the basic idea is to reach out to um, scientists uh, really throughout the world um, who are dealing with microorganisms, try to work to support those scientists to help secure collections, which is going to be something which is going to be very helpful to decrease the probability of bioterror and other sorts of biothreats, to increase surveillance capacity, which will help us to predict pandemic disease, and to basically support scientists who are excellent and, by and large, would be doing great work if they just had the resources to do it. I think these are also going to address, um, you know, create scientific collaborations internationally, which will help us with the concerns which will continue to grow over biopiracy. One of the big issues is we need to have free sharing of specimens um, between different countries in order to create influenza vaccines. And what that means is long-term diplomacy with scientists in these countries uh, working to develop the right kinds of infrastructure. And I think, um, you know, from my perspective, among the other things, this is one of the things that would be one of the major ways to mitigate some of these major global threats. Great. Please put your hands together and uh, join me in thanking this panel.